Uh, Sean, may I recommend a new campaign song for Donald Trump rather than Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA that we're all so familiar with now? I think he should. Hold on. Play this instead. I don't expect you to be an expert on pop culture, but do, do you know that song? Thank God you don't expect me. No, I fail. Pass. Fail? Whatever you say in these situations. You're Next not, question. You're not a Swifty then. Do you even know what it's a Swift? Taylor Swift. It is. Is that what she sounds like? Amazing. Yeah, it, it, that's her new song. This is what people are being ripped off for unfeasibly large amounts of money for in, in the, her concert tour here in America. Sticker price shock is what I think they're talking about. Listen, uh, we're eagerly awaiting prices. a tour here in Ireland. I will put my hand up. I am a Swifty. Um, well, it's, it's a bit like going to a Donald Trump rally. It can cost you a lot of money as well. Absolutely. Well, listen, maybe you should look into that song. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. But moving swiftly along. See what I did there? Let's get stuck into this podcast. Finally, Sean, the dust is settling with these elections and we can finally dig deep into what these results mean. At the time of recording this podcast, Republicans are just a few seats shy of taking a majority in the House, a very slim one at that. For the Senate, it's 50 for the Democrats and 49 for Republicans. That last seat will be decided in a runoff election in Georgia in December because Democrat Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker didn't get over that 50% of votes needed to be elected. And it's not the Republican bloodbath that everyone expected during these elections, Sean, is it? No, it's not, Jackie. I was talking to one very senior Democrat on the eve of polling and asked him, you know, what did a good day look like for you guys? And he said, holding on to control in the Senate and losing less than 10 seats in the House of Representatives. Uh, But that was his most optimistic scenario. The, The guy was bleakly pessimistic and feared that they were going to be washed away in the red wave that everybody said was going to come, but actually didn't come in the end. So it was uh, close to being uh, the best possible result that the Democrats could have hoped for. Yeah, it was a great birthday present for Joe Biden, wasn't it? He turns 80 soon because as we've talked about before, whoever is in the White House usually loses seats and a lot of seats in a midterm election. And the performance by the Democrats this year is considered to be the best for a sitting party in decades. Who needs Marilyn Monroe singing happy birthday to you when you can get a result like that as a birthday present? Happy birthday, Mr. President. But Sean, is this down to the Democratic Party being popular or issues within the Republican Party? Because it was a tough race for Democrats in New York. Sean Patrick Maloney, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee chairman, he lost his seat. Yeah, he did lose his seat, and uh, that was a a surprise to them. I mean, we've said before, most of the seats in these American House elections, and indeed most of the Senate seats, they're pretty much safe seats. Uh, They're not really contested. So the number of seats that are seriously contested are small. So the reason why you become the the director of elections uh, for a party is that your seat is considered so safe that you don't have to put in the, the ground yards to try and retain that seat. And that was the case with Sean Patrick Maloney. He was popping up on television stations all the time, doing the work nationally, 
but they got him. They got him in his own backyard. And that was a real blow uh, for the Democrats. But that speaks to wider problems that they appear to be having in New York itself, uh, where their governor, Kathy Hochul, struggled uh, in a state that she really shouldn't have struggled in. And there was a real resurgence with the Republicans there picking up four extra seats in the House of Representatives uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, in places that they probably shouldn't have got them in the past. So whatever the Republicans were doing right, they were doing it right in New York and they were doing it right in Florida, but they were making uh, errors in other places. So why did people get out to vote then? What energised them to get out to vote? Well, the usual warning here, this is a continent. Uh, it's not a, uh, mm. you know, a compact little European country. Uh, there's lots of issues at play in lots of different regions, and we see that state by state. And indeed, the elections themselves are conducted state by state under state laws. So different states are going to have different issues. I guess the national level, the polling was telling us uh, the, re the economy was the big issue for the uh, public, and the economy is in a pretty poor condition. Like everywhere else in the Western world, there's very high inflation here. And that squeezes people. And when people are being squeezed, they usually turn on the government in power. So that was the conventional thinking that we all thought, yep, the Republicans, they've got history on their side. They've got the economy on their side. What more do you really want for a, a big landslide? But that didn't happen. So what were the other issues? And that's what people are trying to figure out now. Certainly abortion was an issue that motivated the Democratic base in most places. In some places, like Pennsylvania and Michigan, exit polls showed that that was the number one issue that had wow. leapfrogged uh, the economy in those particular states. And that helped to carry certainly John Fetterman over the line uh, quite narrowly in his competitive race, but also helped the Democrats to sweep the boards in, uh, in Wisconsin. So uh, they did very well up there on a range of local issues. But in other cases, such as New York, those same issues didn't work in their favour. So it's a complex picture. Yeah, because on our last episode, it was all about American democracy and how Joe Biden used those final days of his campaign to talk about how American democracy was on the ballot. And a lot of people were scratching their heads. All the guests that we had were scratching their heads going, why is he focusing on this so much when he should be talking about the cost of living crisis, inflation and the economy? So was he right then? That was also on the ballot because if we look at those election deniers, we were talking about the 2020 election deniers who sought to become top election officials in critical battleground states. They lost at the polls this year. What we saw was the strength and resilience of the American democracy and we saw it in action. And the American people proved once again that democracy is who we are. And there was a strong rejection of election deniers at every level from those seeking to lead our states and those seeking to serve in Congress, and also those seeking to oversee the elections. And uh, there was a strong rejection of political violence and voter intimidation. And there was an emphatic statement that in America, the will of the people prevails. They did lose at the polls. So yes, in retrospect, Joe Biden was right to be talking about democracy. And I guess professional politicians know their public in ways that the rest of us simply don't. That's why they are professional politicians, of course. And mm -hmm. they have the ear to the ground and they are picking up on their radar, which is highly uh, attuned to what the voters are thinking, uh, yeah. the issues that were going to be important to them. Also, Biden was on a hiding to nothing if he went out talking about the economy because the numbers are the numbers. Every time you go down the shops, you know that things are in a bad way. Um, so you don't need to be reminded of that. And the less the president talked about it, the economy, 
uh, the less it was going to stick to him. He would have inevitably said something that would have been seized on by his opponents and used as a weapon against him. That's the way politics works, folks. Yeah. Uh, so he was better off picking an issue that put the, the Republicans on the back foot. And the economy was definitely not that issue. So democracy, that was the one to talk about. And yes, in some of the states, again, only some of the states, that was going to be a, a seriously important issue. Uh, Pennsylvania was one of them because of the governor candidate, Doug Mastriano, uh, and also Arizona, which we've seen running very, very late and coming in with that uh, very late governor's result there uh, in which uh, Carrie Lake, a very prominent election denier, uh, lost, but lost narrowly. And it took an awfully long time to get all those votes through. Uh, so that was a, a big one. In Arizona, the election deniers failed everywhere on the slate. And that was also true in a handful of very important battleground states, uh, states that were important in the last presidential election, will be important in the next presidential election. The only exception where the election deniers did pretty well uh, was the state of Georgia. And that's a state that's still in play, of course. And we were speaking before, Sean, because a lot was riding on this election for the likes of Donald Trump, um, considering a lot of those election deniers, he w he was the one who was campaigning for them. He was backing them. And these midterm elections would tell a lot for the future of Donald Trump's political career because his candidates, which he endorsed, they didn't do as well as expected in these elections. And we'll talk about his third bid for the presidency shortly. How can we not? But first, the midterm election results... What do they mean for the Republican Party? They mean they've got to go back to the drawing board because, you know, you look at this thing as an outside observer and say a terrible economy, a president who's riding low in the, the opinion polls and the ratings. Uh, it should have been uh, a shoe in for them. The history was on their side. So what were they doing wrong and what were they doing right? Now, you look at the state of Florida and you look at the state of New York, they were obviously doing something right there. So what was it about the way they ran their campaigns, the way they'd set up the uh, electoral system uh, for themselves that was good for them and was working for them? That's why people are talking a lot about Ron DeSantis, because he was surfing the very top of a very big red wave down in Florida. This used to be a battleground state, a so-called purple state, yeah. uh, which could go either way. But now it's absolutely as red as they come. And that's because of the careful work that DeSantis and the Florida Republicans have done over the past several years to make it that way and come up with policies and positions that appeal to the voters. So what is it about him and what is it about the New York Republicans that appeals to voters? Uh, and what is it about Arizona and Pennsylvania where the voters were put off? That's what the Republicans are going to be concentrating on now. And that's why Donald Trump has come back into the frame in their calculations because the candidates that he was backing in the critical states like Arizona and Nevada and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, they failed. They failed in their mission. Now, Trump was out in his speech last night uh, saying, I got 200 and something uh, of the people I endorsed. Uh, they won and you know, 80 something lost. We had a good uh, number there. Yeah, probably true. But in the places where it really, really, really counted, the Trump candidates lost. And that's yeah. what they're going to be concentrating on. Yeah, because we're recording this right off the back of Trump announcing his attention, intention to run for president again. His message, America's comeback starts right now. I am running because I believe the world has not yet seen the true glory of what this nation can be. We have not reached that pinnacle, believe it or not. 
In fact, we can go very far. We are Americans, and we do not have to endure what has taken place in Washington, D.C. This is our country, our government, and the Carters of power, they're our Carters. They're not their Carters. These are our Carters. And we are coming to take those Carters back. So Donald Trump filed his official candidacy papers with the US Election Authority moments before he was due to publicly announce his candidacy. Interestingly, his daughter Ivanka has ruled herself out of his campaign, saying she was prioritising her family and private life. But it's an unusually early entry into the White House race, and it could be a very crowded field for the Republican nomination. But also, there are also many legal woes hanging over Donald Trump too, Sean. Yeah, and, and all those issues are interrelated, Jackie, uh, as, as we've mentioned previously. I mean, one of the theories going around is that Trump was always going to run because that way he can put off and maybe even kill off some of the legal uh, difficulties that he's facing. Uh, certainly the most uh, high profile of them, the one the case is uh, being brought by the uh, attorney general or uh, under investigation by the attorney general relating to the uh, possession of documents at Mar-a-Lago and the uh, so-called raid on Mar-a-Lago. That's a, a difficult one because it is highly politically charged. You've got the state going after a former president in relation to official state documents and potentially state secrets. So by declaring yourself a candidate for the election, the theory goes, you make it that much harder for Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, to bring a case against you. We'll see how that one plays out and we'll see how it plays out in all of these other uh, cases that are under investigation. The one area where he might uh, get away with it uh, as a result of the elections and control of the House passing to the Republicans is, of course, the January 6th committee, which is expected to be shut down uh, when the new House um, formally takes office in uh, January. So there's only a few more weeks left in which that committee can really do its work. Donald Trump had been subpoenaed to appear before them on Monday. Strangely enough, he didn't appear before them on Monday. Uh, and on Tuesday, uh, that's when he declared his candidacy for the presidency of the United States. Yeah, Donald Trump's name now officially in the mix, but also other names are now popping up too, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And it does appear from this election that the likes of Ron DeSantis may have more of appeal um, as the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Plus, we also have Donald Trump's uh, former Vice President Mike Pence doing the media rounds as he has a new book out and he's seen as a potential 2024 challenger as well. Then we've got the likes of the powerful media empire of Rupert Murdoch. It, it appears that he has turned his back on Donald Trump as well, labelling him after the midterms as a loser who shows increasingly poor judgment. But despite all of this, Donald Trump, he has amassed a campaign war chest of well over $100 million. Yeah, uh, because he's been at it for a long time. I mean, mm. it, it, it hardly feels like uh, he took a break from campaigning, uh, really. Uh, he's been out in the field doing all these rallies for the past several months. And yes, they're in support of local candidates, candidates that he was backing uh, out there. But it looked more like a campaign rally for Donald Trump, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, he was the centre of attraction at all of these things. Uh, we all know Trump was there. What other candidate names can you name off uh, when you think back over the past three or four months mm -hmm. of those Trump rallies when he was, of course, teasing and teasing that he was going to 
uh, run again or would have to run again or would be forced to run again. And those teases became more and more emphatic in the last three or four weeks of the campaign. Again, some in, in the Republican Party say that was exactly the wrong message at the wrong time uh, to the electorate and that if he'd have backed off then, they might have picked up those crucial extra seats, particularly the Senate seats. If he hadn't backed certain candidates like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, they believe they absolutely would have won those seats uh, and uh, taken control of the Senate as well. So a lot of uh, contention has blown out into the public. And that's the interesting thing, that you've got governors, you've got strategists, you've got senators, congressmen, coming out on air saying Trump is a problem for our party. And that's that's interesting because they, you know, they'll say these things behind the scenes off the record, but they don't want to be associated with it in public because they've been afraid of Donald Trump. The result of this election has made a lot more people uh, emboldened. They feel less afraid of Donald Trump. They fear that uh, they don't fear the consequences as much as they used to fear them because he has been quite ruthless in picking off his enemies and squeezing them to dust. Uh, but enough people are, are starting to stand up now that you just start to think maybe, maybe inside the Republican Party, the magic is wearing off Donald Trump. Yeah. They, more of them are starting to regard him as an electoral liability rather than an electoral asset. And in the words of that astonishing uh, Wall Street Journal editorial that branded Trump the serial loser, uh, he's not a guy who's necessarily going to win for you. And they want to win. They want, they're in the business, like all political parties, of being in power. And if they don't think Donald Trump is going to be the guy who gets them into power, then they're going to start looking for other people. And you mentioned a couple of names in there. DeSantis is doing well. And yeah. as I said earlier, what are they doing in Florida that's getting them the votes? And what are they doing in the places like Pennsylvania or Arizona that's not getting them the, the results that they're after? Yeah, well, Sean, I've been speaking to Greg Swenson from Republicans Overseas about the future of the party, Donald Trump, and everything in between. And I first asked him what he thought about the 2022 midterms, and this is what he had to say. Well, clearly we were disappointed, you know, the, the Republicans, you know, were expected. And it wasn't just speculation on my part or, or optimism. You know, the, the polls were indicating that it would be a red wave and that the Republicans would pick up you know, close to 30 seats in the House and two to four seats in the Senate. And, you know, it, it didn't materialize for a number of reasons. So, you know, yes, we're disappointed, but, you know, there were some positives to, to come out of it. And I think, um, you know, we, we just learned some lessons. We have to do better messaging and not, you know, necessarily let the, the Democrats and the, and the media advocates in, in the U.S., define the narrative and they did a good good job at it by the way I'm, i mean my hats hats off to the to the democrats and and the um the corporate media that that really did a great job changing the narrative or, or the discussion from the things that were important to americans that were polling as as the top issues for americans that really favored republicans the economy inflation crime the humanitarian crisis at the border education and they changed it to a couple of narratives you know notably the the threat to democracy and and of course they elevated abortion to uh, to and which ended up being the number two issue in the exit polls. So that was just really well done and it, it showed that the, the Republicans weren't defining what they were planning to do, not just, you know, Biden is bad or the Democrats are bad, but what are you going to do about it? And then also they didn't articulate their vision on on abortion very well. And and the if you saw the states that 
that uh, had Republican landslides, you know, they actually did sign in uh, abortion legislation and it didn't hurt them at the polls. So it just needs to be better messaged, I think. A a trend that a lot of people are looking at is the performance of Republican, what people are calling them 2020 election deniers. A lot of them were backed by Donald Trump uh, during this campaign. And even um, the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, he kind of questioned the quality of Republican candidates during these midterm election results. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, you know, candidates do matter, especially in Senate races. You know, you can you can be a first time candidate and run in a congressional district, especially one that doesn't cost a lot of money. If you're in a rural part of you know, California and you saw, um, you know, some of these candidates, uh, some of the, the House seats that the Republicans flipped were in, tr- you know, what would arguably be arguably be traditional blue states and notably California, New York and Florida, which is more of a red state now, but it was considered a swing state only two years ago. So so the pickups, (laughs) it's interesting to look at where the pickups came, but surely um, Senate candidates have a very difficult task if they're first time candidates. You know, you have to be a fundraising machine. You know, J.D. Vance in Ohio only raised eleven million dollars. That's completely inadequate. He ended up winning. But, you know, he's in a what's now a red state and the governor, um, Mike DeWine, you know, won by 25 points. So, you know, it was it, it surely showed that candidate selection matters. Yes, the, the Trump uh, candidates that were really endorsed by Trump or in some cases really selected by Trump, like Herschel Walker, you know, did not do that well or, or, or lost for the most part. But again, with the exception being J.D. Vance or the obvious exception. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the Monday morning quarterbacking would suggest that we have to do a better job. And, and it's surely that that uh, issue about dwelling on the 2020 election had an effect. I mean, I, I point to Carrie Lake, who, who I really liked in Arizona. And but, you know, at any other time, I think would have had a much easier path to election. But because she dwelled on that, uh, I think that cost her, you know, at the polls, especially with independents, you know, you think uh, you focused on it too, a little too much, the 2020 election. Yeah. Yeah. It just it, it just ended up being a, a really it, it's really a distraction in many ways. You know, the Republicans had so many good things to run on and the Republicans. Set, I mean, the Democrats set us up really nicely with, you know, seven, seven or eight percent inflation and and two, you know, two quarters of negative GDP growth. I mean, all the bad things. You know, the, the must have commodities, which are, you know, groceries, fuel and utilities are up 16 percent year over year. They, these are these are metrics that set up the opposition party really nicely. And the Republicans you know, clearly didn't take advantage of it in the messaging. But also they were sort of outfoxed by the Democrats who who elevated those two issues. You know, again, the, you know, abortion was one that, that that definitely counted with some independence in some states. But they also made it an issue in states that really don't matter. Like, for example, there's no risk in New York that there'll ever be <laughs> any restrictions on abortion. Same with Illinois. And yet the can- the Democratic candidates really hit the airwaves with messaging that, you know, the, the mean Republicans were going to take away your right to choose. And, you know, it, it, it had an effect. There's no doubt about it. I'd, I'll be curious to see the more specific data on that. But there's no doubt that it had an effect, whereas the Republicans that messaged on abortion, even, um, you know, that many of whom actually signed restrictions into into legislation in their states 
they all won in landslides. You know, now granted they're red states, but it it doesn't preclude a candidate from making a statement and 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 also most of them signed legislation that was consistent with Western European and actually much more liberal than anything you'd see in in Ireland, for mm-hmm. example. So you know, you know the the twelve, you know whether it's twelve weeks or fifteen weeks. I think uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida signed a, a restriction at fifteen weeks. You know, that's that's France and Germany. That's most of Western Europe. So I, I think that that needed to be needed to be messaged more clearly instead of just avoiding the issue, which is always a mistake. Yeah. So so that's the twenty twenty two midterms done and dusted. Obviously, yeah. you know, not a second to spare. We're already thinking about twenty twenty four, and so is Donald Trump as well. What do you make of him going for the presidency again? Well, it's it's classic President Trump. You know, he doesn't do things by the historical norms. You know, he doesn't care about norms or traditions. You know, this is way too early for for any a candidate of either party to to, um, to basically enter the race or or any serious candidate anyway. Um, that that's usually something you'd expect in the spring. Um, you know, the spring of the year before the election. So. You know, it's it's. I think it's premature. I think maybe that's part of his game plan to just get out ahead of everybody else. He's also probably looking at potentially beating some indictments, especially if there's an indictment from Merrick Garland, the uh, the attorney general, that it would really make that look like political warfare. It would make it, he'd actually get a bump from that, to tell you the truth. So I think he, you know, there's there's probably some, you know, inside baseball we call it in America. You know, just there's probably some real technical thought process that went into this that encouraged him to to uh to announce early but i i don't really get it i don't think it's a good idea and also he would i think he would be better off waiting for several republicans to enter the race the more opponents he has the better for him because the opponents will split the non-trump vote and that's really what happened in 2016. so if, if it was just head to head with ron DeSantis. I think it would be really competitive. DeSantis is polling, you know, seven or 10 points higher than Trump right now. Again, it's two years away, so it doesn't really mean much. But if you have five candidates in there splitting the vote and and several of them are going to be in, you know, going to be in single digits or double, you know, in the teens, that really helps Trump because, you know, again, in 2016, he was only winning one third of the vote in the primaries and the caucuses. It's just that the other 70% was split amongst, you know, at 1.14 candidates. But even when it was, even if it's split amongst five candidates, that really favors Trump. Mm. Greg, we've spoken to you on the podcast before back in 2020 for season one. And I'm just interested to hear from you as a Republican. What was the final straw for you with Donald Trump? Because this is a very different interview today in 2022 compared to back in 2020. What happened? Sure. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a number of things, right? I mean, his, his back in 2020, even during the, the drama of, of early 21, a lot of people, including me, just could overlook the drama and the mean tweets and the, and the little, you know, the fights he always was getting. And you could overlook that because his policies and especially his outcomes were so great. They were better for the American people, better for the world in terms of foreign policy, better for all the identity groups that the the Democrats are always arguing, you know, or or depending on for votes, you know, um, women, people in the lower quartile, people in the lower decile, 
basically, you know, everybody except white males did better in, in the in the Trump administration. So if you looked at outcomes, you were willing to overlook the drama. But what you know, after two years since that election, you know, the dramas continued, you know, the, the 2020 elections, even if you, you view that in the rearview mirror as kind of, you know, history, you still have the fact that that President Trump with his his uh you know, let's just call it uh, his inability to control his, emo- you know, his his emotions. You know, he's, he doesn't have self-control and he gets into fights needlessly. I think that's a drag as as an electoral uh, candidate, but also it's a drag on the party. And so I think, you know, the Democrats and the and the activist media really tried to make this election about Trump, just like they did in 2018. And he actually cooperated. And so when you see those moments where you know, if he had stayed out of the limelight and not talked about himself at the rally, 10 impossible. Days ago and threatened impossible. And announcing, you know, that just was a distraction and actually helped the Democrats. And and you can look back at the, the special election in Georgia in, in January of 21. Mm-hmm. Another great example where, you know, the president really was looking at his own career and not keeping the Senate in Republican hands. And that ended up being really destructive. Because, you know, President Biden was able to get a lot of his destructive policies through with just 50 votes in the Senate. And he couldn't have done that if the, if the Republicans had 51 or 52 seats. So, yeah, there's, a, there's some electoral baggage, too. And so it's not just the personality issues. It's the fact that, you know, we want to win elections. And, and if President Trump is a, is, a, is a headwind to Republicans winning, then I think, you know, we have to really reconsider who the better person would be in 2024. Enough is enough, it sounds like. Listen, uh, Greg Swenson from Republicans Overseas, thank you so much for joining us on States of Mind. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So back to the now, Sean, rather than 2024, what does the midterm results mean for Congress and the White House, Joe Biden, for the next two years? Democrats will continue with control over the Senate. Republicans seem have a slim majority in the House. What, do, what does it all mean? Well, it means in the first instance, um, jobs for the boys, because there's rows inside the Republican Party uh, right now. Um, we're awaiting uh, on this day of recording um, a, a vote in the Senate Republican caucus to see if Mitch McConnell retains his um, very lengthy tenure as the uh, minority leader, the leader of the Republican um, Party in the Senate. Kevin McCarthy, who was the heir apparent to Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House of uh, Representatives, he's almost certain to face challenge as well uh, in the uh, the House uh, because as a bunch of people think, you know, he's not really the guy for us. And when the new uh, intake of Republicans arrive after Christmas, he might have difficulty Uh, actually securing the votes in the House. Uh, And in the meantime, he's going to have to do an awful lot of horse trading to try and keep the various factions in the party uh, together and on his side. And that's going to be the interesting thing to watch. What kind of sidebar deals is Kevin McCarthy cutting with various uh, factions in the the, the party, particularly this Freedom Caucus, uh, who are broadly analogous, I guess, to the role played by the ERG, the European Research Group, in the Tory party, it's a very conservative uh, group of, of uh, members who want to uh, advance a particular agenda and they will want to go aggressively after Joe Biden personally, his family, the Hunter Biden laptop affair and all that, and also um, into other aspects of the 
uh, Biden administration investigations into the FBI, the Attorney General, etc., etc. So there's going to be a, an attempt to turn the tables and clog up the works in the House of Representatives for the new administration. So McCarthy or whoever becomes Speaker of the House has to tread a path between keeping the various factions of his own party happy and trying to get some business done in the House as well, because there will be issues related to, for example, the debt ceiling, how much money the federal government has at any given time to pay its bills. Are we going to see another one of these uh, civil service shutdowns because they can't reach agreement uh, particularly in the House, about raising the debt level so the, the federal government uh, stays uh, you know, solvent, stays liquid, uh, and can meet its liabilities. So those are the things that are going to uh, come to the fore. That's the real insider Washington swamp-type <laughs> politics that are going to be obsessing Republicans and Democrats uh, over the coming weeks. But I did hear one quote from uh, a, a Democrat congressperson. They had a, a caucus meeting yesterday. I said, we walked into the room, it was like we'd won the Super Bowl. Wow. Wow. Well, listen, Sean, there is so much to talk about um, over the next couple of weeks. So we'll chat again soon, Sean, about all of that. Absolutely, Jackie. Looking forward to it.